And that was Bob Dylan with The Times, They Are A-Changing. And indeed they are. So good morning. You're listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson, your hosts today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM. So, in the lead-up to the Australian Capital Territory General Election 2020, Behind the Lines has been hosting a series of interviews featuring party candidates to discuss their policies and platforms with a theme for conversation of motivations and vision. This morning will be our final interview in the series. Later this morning at 9.45, we'll also have Dr Peter Tate from the Canberra Alliance of Participatory Democracy back with us in studio to discuss the emerging election trends and CAPAD's role in helping to make democracy in the ACT more responsive, accountable, participatory and transparent. But first, Joining us via phone, we would love to welcome William Burke, who is the founder and president of the Sustainable Australia Party. So welcome to the show, William. Good morning, Zena. Good morning, Scotty. Thanks for having me. That's terrific. So, um, William, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the party and yourself, just to get people familiar with who you are that may not have come across you yet or don't know too much about what the party um, is platforming with and also where they stand on things. So perhaps a little bit of the origin of the party and how you got involved. Yeah, sure, Zena. Um, basically, it's uh, it's really great that in, in our democracy, we're able to participate, um, you know, with, with new newer minor parties and, and uh, community type parties. And, and that's exactly what we are. We're an independent community party. We're from the political centre. Um, we believe in an evidence-based approach to policy. We don't, we don't sort of look right or left. We look right across the spectrum and want to include everyone in decision-making um, and look at, you know, science and the like. I guess our central focus is sustainability, and, and to us, sustainability means um, being able to meet our own needs as a society without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. Um, and, and that principally means that we treat the environment properly. Um, if we operate our society within environmental limits, um, then we will pass on Canberra, Australia and the world to future generations in a good state. So that's, that's basically us in a nutshell. We've got a really broad policy platform that we're happy to talk through. But yeah, in a nutshell, an independent community party from the political centre. Wonderful. Now, you've had a bit of a, a love of nature and the environment for some time, and you also quite extensively travelled. Was that one of the reasons you decided to form this party? Um, I think that for me, growing up on the urban fringe, um, and the bushland was my backyard. So a as a kid, I was on my BMX out um, or walking, you know, in, in the bushland just all the time, you know, whenever I could. And you know, the cockatoos, the blue-tongue lizards, um, the, the, the creeks, uh, just playing in the Australian bush really ingrained in me a love of nature. And then just gradually to see much of that um, bulldozed for housing development and sprawl, um, that, really, that really sort of crystallised for me uh, why we need to think about... I think the central problem that the world faces, which is a growth in consumption and population of, of, of humanity, we are, we are expanding our consumption and population at rapid rates. 
and really not leaving much space for nature and really taxing nature and we're not leaving the world in a good place for future generations. Yes. And have you been um, able to fill out a CAPAD statement at all, which is the Canberra Alliance for Participatory Democracy? Um, it gives people a chance to get to know the candidates a little bit better, give some background on their passions as human beings, not just as politicians. Yeah, look, we've been we've filled in a as a small party. It's it's hard to um, get all of the responses done, but we've we've uh, responded to um, you know the ACT Electoral Commission and um, also you know City News. Um, um, there's a couple of others, but the 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 particular one you mentioned, I, I'm not. Uh, 100% sure. What we have in our policies is a really strong governance policy. Uh, so we've been really specific in our own policies around how we want to see transparent and trustworthy governance. Um, so we've got some really specific things there around stopping, you know, politicians going from being a politician one minute to a lobbyist the next, establishing anti-corruption commissions, putting in place citizen juries around planning issues so that there's much more participation from the community and things like um, having uh, plebiscites, uh, a Swiss-style plebiscite system where, you know, the community can have national plebiscites on really important issues uh, if, if enough people sign a petition. So we've covered a lot of those types of issues in terms of trustworthy uh, governance in our policies. Mm. And one of the things I did notice as I was going through your site um, over the last couple of days is, you know, you, you're very, very um, passionate about making sure we don't overdevelop. Like there's a lot of concern around overdevelop and the corruption that comes with overdeveloping. Yeah. Um, how are you proposing to address some of the need to do developing without overdeveloping and without damaging our nature? Yes, so our planning and development policy really talks about the fact that our planning system has gone from one probably 20, 30 years ago where there was much more community consultation to one that I think just favours property developers. So it's a development at all costs and, and without proper consultation. That's not just in the ACT, that's in Victoria, New South Wales, WA. They're really centralising uh, what used to be in local communities, and in some states have local councils, more formal local councils than the ACT, people used to have real grassroots input into planning decisions. These days it's been centralised into state government ministers or territory government ministers uh, where they can pull in development proposals. You know, a Dixon, uh, I think, was a recent example. And, and rather than go through a proper community consultation process, the, the Minister for Planning just says, no, sorry, we're doing it, bad luck. Uh, what we want to do is we want to establish citizen juries where local community panels uh, would determine local planning. Uh, they would put in place height limits, density limits, uh, protection of green spaces, um, and all of those types of issues that would, by the, by the view of the, uh, um, a representative local community panel, um, stop over development and therefore take what I would call systemic corruption out of the planning system that favours property developers over local communities. Mm -hmm. And what sort of powers will citizens' juries have? Will they be able to hold these developers to account and the politicians that allow the development to account? Yeah, indeed. Um, basically, a citizen jury um, could not be overturned. 
by state government ministers, government departments or, or, or so-called independent tribunals, which are often made up with planning industry uh, professionals. We think that the people uh, at the grassroots who've heard all of the evidence and the, the, the property developers would have had an opportunity to present, uh, as would um, community environmental groups, to the representative citizen juries. And, and uh, the, the, the minister um, would, would need an, a very good reason to overrule um, the local community, and I think they'd do that to their great detriment at the next election. Well, that sounds like it gives a bit more power back to the people. And that's what it's all about. It's about um, more participatory democracy, mm-hmm. uh, more grassroots-driven democracy, and uh, ultimately, you know, protecting the environment, protecting our quality of life, and, and making governance much more transparent to the average person. Yeah, yeah. G'day, William. It's Scotty here. G'day, Scotty. Yeah, how are you? I very, think... very well. Busy times, and <laughs> no um, doubt we've been out and about, and uh, we're we're running in all five electorates in the ACT. So yeah, very busy, and uh, but really enjoying it. Yeah, no, that's good. Now, um, I should point out to the listener, I think it's a, a little bit different from most of our our uh, talks so far, in that you're not actually running in this uh, electorate, are you? No, that's right. I'm, I'm the president of the party, and um, whilst I am a candidate for the party at different elections, um, for example, in New South Wales, and uh, we, ha- we had a launch, I was down there on the weekend, um, I'm not running in particular in Canberra, but as a minor party, we share the load. Um, you know, we share right across the board. We're, we're not um, full-time politicians or, or, or what have you, so we, we just share the load around, so it's great to talk to you guys today. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think all of the local candidates were pre-booked when we went to... Uh, this was our last slot available during the election still, so uh, it good that you could fill in. Um, now, how I guess it's important in, in this sort of sense now that um, we talk about how... Is there independence in, in, the, in the sense of sort of crossing the party line, crossing the floor... Um, so you're talking about the yep. party platform. Yep. How closely are the candidates likely to be following the party platform? Look, reasonably closely, Scotty, but we do, uh, as a party of the political centre, and as I said, we don't push um, a left or right agenda. Um, as a party of the political centre, we do give our candidates more scope to have conscience votes on a whole, ra- whole range of issues. Um, for example, on social issues or, or local issues, um, if they feel really strongly about an issue, and um, then then that's their, you know, there's an opportunity there to, to have a different opinion and a different vote. And, and we think that trying to tie everyone to one single party line on everything really isn't the way forward in politics. So the more ability to talk through issues, respectfully disagree, which frankly, they don't do in um, for example, if you've got on the left Labor and Greens and on the right Liberals, they have slanging matches and they don't really work together. We want to bring people together that have different views uh, and we come up with a consensus 95% of the time. But if we don't, we're open to someone having a different vote. Yeah, right. Yeah, So you're using, I guess, a less oppositional sort of way to get around things. Definitely consensus driven from what we'd say is the sensible centre I think politics is the art of the compromise. So you've, you've, you've kind of got to say, OK, well, you've got a different point of view. 
you know, let's not let our perfect outcome be the enemy of a good outcome. Let's get a good outcome that we, we want to move forward on and uh, improve Canberra, um, you know, even if it's one step at a time. Yeah, yeah. So that, uh, that terminology of the sensible <laughs> centre... Uh, I've sort of recognised that I'm not really in the centre. So Fair enough. I don't know, I'm feeling a bit silly now. <laughs> no, that's, that's all right. And and you're allowed to be on the right or on the left. There's absolutely no problem with that. I think that, you know, centre-left, centre, centre-right, the broad, you know, prob- that encompasses probably 60 to 80% of the Australian population. And the vast majority of issues we'd agree on. We agree that we want to protect our environment. We agree that we want to stop overdevelopment. We, we agree that we want good health and education services. We agree that we want a more diverse economy, not just reliant on housing development or mining. You know, we want manufacturing. So, you know, we agree on the vast majority of things. Um, so let's work on those things that we do agree on. And, you know, uh, th- that's a really good starting point. Yeah, yeah. I guess the other thought that I had about the the centre is that we we really are in extraordinary times now. We have climate refugees down on the south coast living in tents still after the bushfires last year. California's going up in flames. They're still trying to top us. I don't know if they will or not this year. Yep. But um, things are things are really heating up around the world, so to speak, and and the climate is is starting to uh, show the signs of the climate breakdown that the scientific consensus has basically promised us. So business as usual is sort of how I think of as the centre. Yep. Um, but business as usual is going to mean the end of an awful lot of things that we hold dear. Um, how does that sort of... I mean, I guess, do you, do you recognise as a party that we're in a climate emergency? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I would have to uh, disagree with you that we want business as usual. Sustainable Australia Party recognises that the root cause of our various environmental crises, including deforestation, climate change, pandemics, um, you know, overfishing, plastic oceans. Now, these are major urgent environmental crises, and you can't have business as usual with this. But, but you've got to go back a step. What's actually causing climate change? And it's this rapid growth in human consumption and population. So we are having a bigger and bigger impact on the planet. And, you know, increasing greenhouse gas emissions beyond what the atmosphere can absorb is coming from increased human consumption of resources, including fossil fuels, and population. So these are the root causes that we want to address. So far from operating in business as usual, we want major changes. And I don't think it's a left or right issue. I think um, it's the broader community recognising this and, and, and wanting to talk about these issues. Mm, yeah, it makes sense. It's funny, though, isn't it, that the centres now become been forced into a radical position of wanting to change the whole mainstream. <laughs> you can definitely call it the radical centre from our point of view. Um, so, um, William, some of your um, environmental and energy policies appear quite similar to the Greens. Yep. And I've had a lot of people I've been talking to over the last few days who would really like to know how, how does Sustainable Australia different from the, diff, uh, differ from the Greens and their environmental and energy policies? Yeah, so I guess there's probably two key areas we differ from the Greens. One is that we're very strong on including population growth in our environmental platform. 
Uh, it's an issue that's been really difficult for the Greens to talk about, and indeed they don't talk about it. Uh, what happened in the, when, the, when the Greens were formed, probably 30 years ago, they, they had a population policy to, to stabilise Australia's population. Uh, that was a very strong environmental policy that they had, the founding Greens. But unfortunately, along came Pauline Hanson in the 1990s and, and linked um, you know, population and immigration issues to race, um, which, which really made it a very difficult and taboo issue to discuss. So the Greens dropped that and then said, oh, well, we don't want to be associated with that uh, type of discussion, so we're not going to talk about it, and we'll just focus on consumption growth. But we want to very much say, no, sorry, we need to talk about both population and consumption growth together because they're both, they're the two key drivers locally and globally of environmental crises, whether it's, uh, I spoke about the bushland destruction um, or, or whether it's, you know, increasing greenhouse gas emissions, both have a, a role to play. So we want to talk about both population and consumption, a more holistic approach. And I guess the second one is, on the social side, uh, we're probably more towards the centre-left centre uh, and give people more of a conscience vote on issues. Even though we're quite progressive um, uh, on average, we'd give people more of an opportunity to have a dissenting view in our party on social issues. Now, you have a sustainable population policy. Yes. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so we think that... Um, Obviously, in Australia, our fertility rate, we're a developed nation, um, and our fertility rate is just under two children per woman. So what we're saying is that that's a good thing. We don't want to be handing out baby bonuses and uh, you know, tax benefits for, 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 people, for families who have more than two children. You've got every right to have as many as you want. We don't want to tell you to not, you know, we don't want a policy on that, how many children you should have, but we just think that we should not be handing out baby bonuses for having beyond two children because we need to stabilise population. And the other thing is immigration. We think that that's gone too high. In the 20th century, Australia had a very successful immigration program of around 70,000 per year. Uh, in the 20th century, that was very successful for Australia. It's tripled to over 200,000 per year in the last 15 years. We'd like to take it back to that normal level of 70,000, and that would have no impact on our refugee intake. Um, one of the things that we've got to be aware of is that there may be more climate refugees to, to be concerned about. So. Uh, having more flexibility for those types of things should be the priority rather than, you know, skills importation and the like, uh, which really undermines training of local workers. Yeah, yeah. So um, the the immigration has, has been increased up to from 70,000 to 200,000 and more. Uh, why? What, what's, the, what's the logic behind increasing the immigration into Australia? Yeah, good question, Scotty. The, the logic really is big business and, and the property industry. Um, basically, uh, very, very influential vested interests um, within state and federal governments that, are, that know that you know, their high-rise apartments and their sprawling housing estates are not going to be able to be sold unless we dramatically increase the number of people um, in Australia. So it's really about... Um, servicing vested interests in the political system um, and that's, that runs right throughout the ma major mainstream media which relies on property advertising 
uh, housing developments, uh, you know, shopping centres, you know, the Westfields and these sort of groups. It's really about that. It's not about refugees. It's not a humanitarian intake. It, it's really just um, bringing in people so that, um, you know, the big end of town, big banks, big property um, has more customers. And you talk about a lot of the um, purchasing of Australian real estate for people that live overseas um, that aren't living in the properties they're purchasing, but there's a lot of um, activity going on in in the real estate industry with foreign buyers, which then, of course, pushes the prices up. It makes it difficult for people who were trying to buy their first home or who, you know, who are on um, lower incomes. So what would be your approach to regulating that? Yes, so one of our key objectives is more affordable housing, um, especially for first-home buyers and renters. Um, You know, people battling. Um, You know, average median income in Australia is $50,000 per year, and it's almost impossible to purchase a home or, um, you know, uh, in, in a place like Sydney or Melbourne or even Canberra, extremely expensive real estate. So we'd like to remove tax concessions for property investors and we'd like to um, stop all foreign ownership, all new foreign ownership of Australian housing. We think that, you know, battlers uh, really, um, you know, the average Australian, the average Australian worker is finding it incredibly difficult to find, to, to, to afford a home. And if they do, both partners are needing to be to work full time to make it make it work. That really has an impact on leisure time and so forth with such high rents and mortgages. So we'd like housing to be more affordable and really to do that we need to reduce demand rather than ever increasing supply. Mm. And I'm understanding that there might be some different approaches to development, like there might be some changing around the zoning and the types of buildings that can be developed, um, maybe to make communities more sustainable, more affordable, looking at different models of building. Look, very open to all of that. And what we do want to do in our planning uh, policy, we've got a whole range of issues we talk about, you know, setting out infrastructure before more housing, uh, leaving uh, animal habitat corridors in place. So the best, the best, um, you know, north-facing design so that, uh, you know, you, you get natural heat rather than having to use gas or electricity to heat up your, your house in the afternoon. Um, so all insulation, all of these issues are really important planning issues. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, ever-increasing growth in consumption and population works against all of those good things that we might do to to retrofit our current housing or, you know, uh, rewild nature areas or so forth. So we've got to start questioning this ever-increasing growth agenda that, frankly, the Liberal, Labor and Greens parties are all on board with and fail to question. So this is also a global issue, you know, like the planet is only comfortable sustaining a population to a certain extent, then then we become um, a bit, you know, a bit, a bit more of a blight on, on the planet's resources. It's a terrible way to look at humanity, but, but we have become that, you know. So in a sense, this is, you know, what's in the micro is in the macro, right? This is it, the same situation happening across the planet. It very much is. It very much is, you know. This, we are, we need to think global and act local and I'd like to see, our party would like to see a significant increase in foreign aid for example, particularly in our region where places like uh, Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea and, and these, these types of areas are, are, are greatly growing 
both their population and consumption of resources and they're struggling with fish stocks and the basics that they need. So we really like to see more foreign aid and we'd like to see Australia lead by example uh, in all of these issues rather than saying, hey, we can grow our population, we can grow our consumption, we can increase our greenhouse gas emissions, but you need to, you know, do differently. So we've got to lead by example in all of these areas. So, um, William... What's been interesting for us, you're actually our final interview in our Minor Party series, and we always put it out to our listeners if they'd like to ask questions of our guests. Yep. And we get a couple questions coming in and, you know, this little bit of activity, but for some reason, your party has generated the most questions from our listeners. Well, so, we can be a bit controversial because, of course, um, you know, we question this growth paradigm, growth in population and growth in consumption. And uh, our politicians have told us for so long that growth is good. Um, so, yeah, very happy to answer yeah. any questions. So um, I'll, I'll give you a couple that are relevant to what we've just been talking about. And uh, someone's asking here who's in the ACT, um, is removing negative gearing still a policy for you? And if so, is there a strategy to put in place so that the tax losses aren't passed on to renters? Uh, why isn't negative gearing wanted? And uh, could it be considered a tax dodge? We do want to phase out negative gearing is the, is the answer to the first question absolutely we think that we think that tax concessions for property speculation are really um, you know diverting money away from much more productive investments like small business like factories and manufacturing like agriculture and farming so if you take away all of the 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 uh, concessions for tax uh, investment in property, people will say, well, hold on, I'm not going to get my return on property. So therefore, I'm going to invest in, say, cochlear uh, ear implant uh, shares. And therefore, we're going to get a much more productive outcome. So I think that, um, yes, we definitely want to phase out tax concessions, but anyone who's got it at the moment should be able to keep it because they invested on, you know, in good faith in that regard. But going forward, we shouldn't be offering that. Um, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I think that does. I think that's great. And also um, a question regarding immigration. Uh, we did cover this a little bit, talking yep. about uh, cutting immigration, but that the refugee intake wouldn't be decreased. It would be uh, accommodating the needs of anyone in dire straits. Yes. So they're, they're also asking here um, that they had heard prior that Sustainable Australia had been a little bit burned by anti-immigration labelling, yes. and they just wanted to know your true stance on that. Yes. Get it from the horse's mouth. No, we definitely have been smeared by people who want, who, because we want to bring immigration back to the level that it normally was, um, our political enemies uh, will brand that as anti-immigration, where it's not anti-immigration at all. We're for immigration, uh, we're for refugee intake, and we're open to an increase in refugee intake depending on the circumstances. Mm, that's great to hear. And I think there was a lot of questions that were very similar to that one. So I thought it'd be good to just clear the air on that so people could hear it straight from you. Yes, uh, um, that's a really important one because, um, you know, that's one of our um, you know, 20 plus policy areas. And um, unfortunately, people tend to get stuck on that one. Whereas, um, you know, we've got, if, 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 you, if you're coming from the point of view that an endless growth in consumption and population is not the way we want to be as a society, then we have to talk about some difficult issues. 
Yeah. So um, another question which is quite relevant to our times, you know, we're still in the um, financial crisis as a result of COVID and, you know, we've got a situation in the ACT where we are a little better off than some of the other states, but we do have very, very high unemployment uh, and there's a lot of people who are, you know, very concerned about being able to meet their needs financially. So another question we had coming in is that um, looking at some of your policies, it said that you would invest in education and skills training for local workers and they wanted to know would this also include the unemployed, would they be eligible for that training as well? Well, very much. They'd be at the centre of um, that investment. And the, the other issue we'd like to um, focus on is a job guarantee. We, we think that there are millions of jobs in Australia that aren't being done, whether it's in aged care, whether it's in environmental restoration, whether it's in education uh, and skills retraining. Um, places like Korea, um, they offer you know, free skills retraining for, you know, over 50s and over 60s. And we're not, we're not offering these types of really significant opportunities of retraining as well as job guarantees. And again, we think that there's millions of jobs that could and should be done in Australia if governments weren't so focused on, um, you know, budget, if they were more focused on people and um, getting people meaningful opportunities. Wonderful. And, you know, in this job creation, what does the pathway to that look like at this time? Well, it's, it's basically a federally funded because the federal government is where the money is and, and has the Reserve Bank of Australia, quite frankly. But we'd like to see this uh, administered at the local level. So in, in the case of the ACT, a bit different structure. You don't have a formal local government like we do in New South Wales. But we'd really like to see localised, community-driven job opportunities. So whether it is, re, uh, you know, rewilding uh, of, of areas, whether it is um, repair factories and cafes for, uh, you know, televisions and tables and all those sort of things. And just getting people started at the grassroots with job opportunities funded by the federal government but administered it at a local level. And there's, I know there's been some concern that um, we haven't had the budget yet and we were all waiting with bated breath to see what will happen. Um, some of the discussion around the situation of the COVID financial supplements which have topped up uh, JobSeeker and have also yep. created JobKeeper. Now, uh, there's been a lot of concern around the Work for the Dole scheme being enforced where that only pays about 52 cents in the dollar. So... We've had listeners wanting to know if you're going to do job creation in some of these um, areas you've discussed, which is, you know, sort of grassroots areas and basic skills, um, is that going to be something like the work for the doll for the unemployed or is that going to be a fair and equitable employment policy? It'd uh, it'd be a much higher level um, basic wage, um, you know, that you would have a median type wage across Australia because you're doing really meaningful jobs in in the area that you'd like to develop your skill set. But as I say, our party values are in environment, are in education, um, and and aged care. I think is another you know really important area. So um, it it would be not a work for the doll. It would be a job guarantee where you're paid a proper wage. To do a meaningful job. And this, I'm, I'm assuming, would allow for the employees to um, also have super set up, which I believe Work for the Doll doesn't allow any transfers. Absolutely. Norm- a normal job with yeah. super and all those types of entitlements, as I say, funded, uh, funded by the federal government. I, I don't know if you've discussed modern monetary theory on your program before. 
Oh, that's a Scotty thing now. I'm going to turn him over to you. Um, nah, not not actually on the show. In passing, we have. But yeah. uh, do you want to outline it for us? Yeah. So look, we're not we're not um, you know completely in that area of 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 advocacy for modern monetary theory, but we we do understand that the federal government uh, has an unlimited money supply within reason, whereas the state and territory governments don't. So, you know, for the federal government to say, oh, we've got a deficit of of $20 billion this year, that's bad. No, it's not bad because the Reserve Bank of Australia provides you, you print your money and we own the Reserve Bank as well. So, you know, we don't want an inflationary outcome, but in a situation where demand uh, has great and and you know uh, employment has greatly fallen you do have that backstop of the reserve bank to print money and that's what they're doing and and let's just be honest about it 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 is our money and we can actually you know provide that funding for local jobs through the federal government whenever we want to well it does sort of seem silly and i guess this is a response to this situation where when the government wants some money, even though it has the, the sovereign power to create it itself without any debt to itself, instead it goes to a bank and asks for it. Well, this, I think, is part of the vested interests that, um, you know, uh, benefit from those types of policies. So rather than a more transparent approach, um, you know, where we can just print our own money, we're, we're, we're paying private banks uh, profit, and, and it just doesn't make sense, Scotty. Yeah, yeah. So what are, what are the other solutions that you have up your sleeve? We've only got five minutes left. Yeah, I guess that um, this, this campaign really we're, we're focusing on, you know, protecting our environment, stopping overdevelopment, stopping corruption. Um, if I can talk a little bit about then our, our governance policies, if that's okay. Go for it. Yeah, so uh, we think that we need more, I guess, transparent and trustworthy governance. I think a lot of people have lost trust in politics and that's really at the heart of our problems. A lot of people have lost trust in institutions that a generation ago they were loyal to, whether it's, um, you know, political parties, um, you know, banks, um, you know, the church or uh, religion, those types of things. So we do need uh, more people power. So we, we'd like to cap political donations very, very low, have, you know, have more timely disclosure uh, before elections, not after. Um, you know, we, we need to make sure we've got a federal um, and, and state anti-corruption commissions. We, we should ban, um, you know, property developer donations across the board uh, and and the other, the other really interesting thing is that the funding of political parties is extremely regressive. So a minor party doesn't get funded, doesn't get a refund for its spend in a campaign in the ACT because it generally doesn't get over 4% of the vote. If you get over 4% of the vote, you get all of your expenditure back. So the Liberal, Labor and Greens have made the system so that they get all of their money back for all their core flutes, all of their digital advertising, whereas the minor parties don't get anything back. It's a bit like a taxpayer earning $200,000 and paying no tax, while, it, while someone who earns $20,000 pays tax. It's a very regressive funding system that really keeps out competition. So we'd like to see all political parties get reasonable funding for their spend so that they can present their arguments, you know, across the board. 
So just that more transparent, um, fair governance is really another big area, and that's why we're talking about stopping corruption, you know, systemic corruption in this case. We're a bit tight on time here, so just one more question for you, William. Why should people vote for minor parties? You know, what, what, what's the attraction that we can encourage our voters to take a look seriously at minor party candidates? I think, uh, Zena and Scotty, because it sends a really important message. It sends a message that you're not happy um, with um, the status quo, with business as usual, to use your phrase, Scotty. And people should know that if they vote one and two, we've got two candidates in each of the five electorates in the ACT, if and you, you need to number at least five. Um, if you vote one and two for Sustainable Australia, if we don't get elected... Um, and you vote three, four, five for your next preferred option, your vote flows on at full value to that candidate. So, you know, it's not wasting a vote. Uh, whereas if you vote for a major party, you've just voted for business as usual, the same left-right slanging match. Um, you know, we, we think that it's a really good opportunity to send a message that, that people want more diversity in the parliament, more opinions, more views, and more consultation with, you know, grassroots communities. Mm, that's a fabulous way of putting it. And that's why we've been giving airtime to the minor parties on the show. We, we know that you guys don't get the funding to get a lot of media coverage. <laughs> Absolutely. Wonderful. So if anybody wants to find out more about your policies and uh, what, uh, what they can do to get involved, I know that we're right in the middle of the uh, elections right now, but um, people who'd still like to get in touch or get involved, where would they go to do that? Yes, so they would just... Um key in sustainableaustralia.org.au or just Google Sustainable Australia Party and, um, you know, they can find out about us. The great thing about these elections is this is the best way for us to get our message out there and uh, we, we think, you know, um, hopefully one or two minor and independent candidates will get up and what we've said to all of the other minor parties and independents collectively is that we'll um, talk to each other if one gets elected and we'll have an open door to, to have that more grassroots consultation with all the other minor parties and independents as well. Mm, fantastic. Well, William, it's been very short and sweet and it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. I'm glad you're able to make time for us. And uh, for those people that are not familiar, who uh, who is your uh, list of people in the ACT, the names? Okay, so we've got uh, 10 candidates. We're obviously running in all electorates and I'll just briefly go through... Um, in Currajong, Joy Angel and John Hayden. Uh, in Jinandera, Paul Gabriel and Mark O'Connor. In Murrumbidgee, Jill Mayle and Jeff Buckmaster. In Brindabella, Bruce Willett and Andrew Clapham. In Yerraby, Scott Young and John Kearsley. So, um, you know, a community-driven um, independent party. And as I say, if you put us one and two... Uh, then go on, number as many boxes as possible to make your vote count. Mm, well, thank you. That's been really clear for our listeners. I really appreciate your time, William, and we look forward to seeing the outcome after mid-October. Thanks for your support of minor parties and independents, Zena and Scotty. You're welcome. No worries. Thanks okay. for joining us. Yeah, that was William Burke from the Sustainable Australia Party joining us this morning as part of our minor series, uh, ACT Elections 2020.